Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Monroe Live podcast. Uh, my name is Thad Kopp, and I'm an engineer, a lead engineer here at, uh, at Monroe & Associates. Uh, I have about 30-plus years of experience, primarily in powertrain, and I've just recently joined Monroe. If, for those of you who are not familiar with Monroe, we do a lot of uh, reverse engineering, benchmarking, teardown analysis, and costing. And uh, today um, on Monroe... We have a guest, Dave Devine. Dave, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> All right. Um, could you just introduce yourself maybe? And Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm a global director of an electrification space at Borg Warner in our PDS business unit. So that's the business unit that does the electronics like the power, uh, like the inverter, like the e-machine, uh, the gear drive, and then taking all that together and creating an IDM out of it. Mm-hmm. All right. Real good. Um, so how did you get in? Like just going back to the the, the basics, the the beginning, the beginning of Dave Devine. How did you how did you get into engineering, and how did you find your way into this field? No, uh, so I think like a lot of us, early very early aptitude for engineering, but then also a love of cars in the automotive industry. So I actually started um, in what was Delphi at the time, out in Lockport, New York. Um, there was a, a division there that did thermal systems. And they had a really strong relationship with uh, Kettering University, uh, which used to be called General Motors Institute. So for me, it was, you know, that first entry level job and then the entry level job um, say, hey, why don't you think about maybe going to Kettering? Right. And then once you're in Kettering, I mean, it's a really strong link to the auto industry. So from there, it's almost like the rest is history, it's sort of uh, just, you know, direct flow right into industry. Right. It's so interesting how so many times you have this vision of what you're going to go into and then uh you, and then it's 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 always highly dependent on what your first job is which is like so many times just like chance so i don't want to make it sound like our careers are just chance but uh, a lot of times it does work out where your first first job out of school kind of does have a, a at least a very strong influence on where your career is headed sounds like that was a case for you so Borg Warner, you're at Borg Warner now, and uh, Borg Warner is big into electrification as, as just about all these suppliers are these days. Um, can you talk a little bit about Borg Warner's entry into the electrification market, like kind of the time frame that that happened, and uh, the different pieces that they they work in in that market? Yeah, absolutely. So Borg Warner, obviously, it's a, a company that, with a history that goes way back to the turn of the previous century, so early 1900s. Uh, so it's been around a long time. And uh, I think the early entry into um, the electrification space really ties a lot more closely with uh, the Tesla Roadster. So if you think back to like that uh, 07, 08 timeframe, and that's right. before I joined the company. So I joined Borg Warner in 2019. So I'm really talking about stuff that's more like corporate legend now. Right. Um, there was a really innovation group that was able to link up with the tex- Tesla Roadster, help get the early Tesla corporation out of some uh, tricky space on the, on the original gearbox. So that first sort of parallel A shaft. Uh, and at the time the volume was low enough with the, we were able to build it right in our engineering facility and, uh, supply that. And I think that plus some very, um, active interest in the company on where the future would be going really, uh, drove senior leadership to say, Hey, this might not just be a fad. Maybe we should really think about where we take this, you know, how do we continue to grow there? So from those early days, uh, there was a lot of really strategic acquisition that started to happen after that point. So. We had the gearbox, and if you think about the gearbox, there's a lot of similarity between a gearbox and a transfer case. So 
um, we're already making like millions of transfer cases a year here in the U.S. And you need to take that torque from the driveline and move it to another place um, with and all you have to do is add a gear reduction to that. And all of a sudden you have like a, a very straightforward EV transmission. So what do you really need to build yourself from there? Electric machine was the next kind of, let's say, obvious play. And right. so uh, Borg Warner bought um, Remy. Uh, which at that time um, was doing a lot of electric machines and still are, but um, they were one of the really early innovators in hairpin motors or bar, bar wound motors. So it was a really nice ad taking what has really become now sort of the, the basic technical building block for an e-drive. You've got really strong gearbox, really strong motor. And then what do you need to add to that? You need uh, an inverter and we had right. we had done some internal work there but then it was really when we bought uh, delphi technologies in i think 2020 um that the full picture started to really come together right. and it was like okay these guys these guys really have it now <clears throat> all right that's really interesting so a lot of the growth some of it was organic and some of it was acquisition it was a mix of both uh and now um you're in production in several several vehicles i think right yeah, absolutely. I think we, we speak a lot about um, Ford Mach-E because uh, Ford has allowed us to talk about it. And so we, we can openly talk about that one. That was one of the first uh, really big places where we were able to come to the market. And then since then, uh, we've continued to develop that technology, uh, but then also release with many other customers around the world. We have a couple really exciting SOPs coming out this year in Asia. And uh, really, the growth story has just continued from there. Well, that's exciting. Uh, maybe... What I, what I thought is maybe we could just piece through all of those bits and pieces of the electrified powertrain and just talk a little bit about more specifically what Borg Warner is doing with each of those pieces. So I know that batteries are one piece of the electrified powertrain and Borg Warner does have some, 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 some product in that space, right? Absolutely. So, uh, in, not in my division. So then I, I get, I'll get out of my depth quickly, but I do want to talk about it a little bit. <laughs> sure. Um, my colleagues in uh, the uh, driving battery system division, they uh, purchased a company called Akasol, uh from Germany. And that company really focuses on CV vehicles and the batteries for those CV vehicles. And uh, I think it's a, a really clear strategy from their side not to get too deep into cell chemistry. Don't try to figure that out because that's a okay. space that has a ton of sort of technical know-how and you need a lot of depth. But as soon as you get out of cell chemistry and you start thinking about how do I take a lot of cells and put them together, right. you're into a mechanical challenge. And then how do I get heat out of that thing or get heat into that thing? You're back into sort of a classical engineering thermodynamics challenge. That's stuff Borg Warner's really good at. Gotcha. So we, I think we found a way uh, to be in that battery space, but without without really getting a nail over our heads. It's, it's been really good. That sounds good. Yeah, that's a great way to go after it. Uh, and then with motors, motors are the kind of the next piece of the electrified powertrain that I'd like to maybe just talk about a little bit deeper. Um, you know, permanent magnet machines are dominating the market at this point. Do you see that continuing? Is that uh, a trend that you expect to continue? Do you, or do you ex expect to see, because of the problems with rare earth material supply chain issues, do you, you expect to see maybe possibly things going more towards induction machines or some other technology? I think you can't ignore the supply chain challenge. That's very right. real. And so we are very actively looking at um, all of the other complementary technologies. So the externally excited synchronous machine, EESM, uh, where you basically wind the stator and then turn the stator into an electromagnet so that you have 
you know, magnetism from the stator being provided with electrons instead of with a magnet. We're, we're working on that. When you look at the overall cycle efficiency, you have permanent magnet machine is, is currently leading more, probably will continue to lead. Uh, then you have the externally excited synchronous machine and then induction motors after that. Okay. And so we really see this as being a way to kind of step up from the efficiency of an induction machine, but uh, still provide some other benefits. I think one of the benefits that you would see there, you get very, uh, very good continuous performance on like a highway cycle. And what's nice about that is when you're not using the machine, it's able to just free free spin without creating any back EMF, and I gotcha. uh, and I don't I don't know how <laughs> uh, how how quickly uh, I went too technically deep there. I think um, w- maybe to just explain back EMF when you have uh, the permanent magnets in in a normal permanent magnet machine and they're spinning. Let's say you stop trying to drive that machine, but your rear axle is still driving forward, and you have a front axle that's still being kind of pushed down the road involuntarily. Right, it's being driven against its will. Those magnets are still spinning in the field of the stator, and it will essentially turn into a generator, whether it wants to or not. So the way that we have to work around that, you have to put in a a disconnect. And we saw actually on um, Monroe Live, I think it was, I can't remember the the podcast, the Enduro Drive unit. Somebody did a really fantastic walkthrough on the teardown there and the disconnect in that unit. So that's really what starts to drive that. If you've got that in a machine, you just disconnect from it. Um, So that ends up being... um, one of the advantages you wouldn't need a disconnect like that with the externally excited okay. machine. Now, permanent magnet though, as a technology that's really going forward, if it wasn't for the supply chain challenges, when you magnetize that stator, you have that magnetic field and it's basically for free. So all the other technologies, induction or the externally excited, you're having to add energy to create the right. secondary field where you get that field for free with the magnets. So I think in a in a world without supply chain challenges, you would really see you know, the the permanent magnet just has some fundamental advantages to it that would, would, would allow it to really dominate the market for the foreseeable future. And those advantages, really what they're translating into is just range, right? I mean, if you go to some other, if you go to an EESM or induction, you're going to lose efficiency and that efficient loss of efficiency translates into loss of range, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, and efficiency is the one single factor that everything we is based around, right. I think. Even cost, of course, cost is really important, but we always take cost and bring it back to into terms of efficiency because you can really translate uh, how efficient something is with how much it costs, and those things really play off of each right. other. Right. So along with efficiency comes cooling, right? All these efficiency inefficiencies, lack of efficiency, anything less than 100% efficiency translates into heat that you need to get rid of. So there's different ways of getting rid of the heat. Some are uh, more active. Some of these motors are more actively cooled. Some are more passively cooled. Some of the stators are glycol cooled. Some are not. Can you talk a little bit about how you decide where the tipping points are for how you decide whether to actively cool a motor versus passively cool a motor and whether or not to, to glycol cool the stator? Absolutely. So that's something that is on the really on that sort of um, cost versus efficiency frontier. And you're uh, engineering that change specifically together, usually with your OEM, on uh, how much do they want to pay for a system versus how much uh, how much efficiency and technology do they really need to put into it. So oil cooling is almost always going to be more efficient. And there's some extra benefits that you get when you oil cool 
from other uses that you can have. Uh, when you oil cool, you need to then add a pump to move the oil around. And once you start pumping oil, there's other secondary things that you can do in your lubrication system that are also enhancing efficiency. So it's one of those things. There's a whole package of benefits that come from making that choice. But it's not cheap. It, it, you, when you activate that choice, you, you add a lot of costs in a lot right. of different areas. So there are some customers who say, you know what, we think we're just as efficient enough without it. And we, you're definitely, in, in all cases, you're gonna have that glycol loop there available. Let's just run the glycol loop around the motor, and that's going to do most of the benefit. Right. Uh, they, and they don't see that, so I think that's that's really it comes down to that trade-off. And a lot of times, that's something that we would do together with a customer to figure out, you know, what's the, what's the right choice here. Okay, got it. Yeah, I guess you know, really, what you're concerned mostly with is there's the, uh, all these systems are thermally limited, right? They're thermally limited. Uh, once you get a beyond us above a certain temperature, you're going to either demag the magnets or you're going to have problems with wire insulation. So really, as you make the decisions as to how to cool it and how much to cool it, what you're really deciding is, I mean, I think those set like the power limits that you're going to be able to push through these motors, right? You can always get away with it. You're just going to lower the continuous power and the peak power numbers, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I think, uh, and and not just the machine, I think, so the machine, but then also the, the inverter as well. Uh, a lot of times you're playing with a thermal limit on both of those and then trying to balance those thermal limits so they're similar, so you're not actually over-contenting either one of those two items. It turns into a really great systems engineering challenge. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, in these systems before, you know, because the timelines, and we'll talk about timelines in a little bit, they're, they're very compressed. And one thing I haven't seen done, and maybe somebody's doing it and I just haven't seen it, but I haven't seen somebody do like a great heat map of where every little piece of thermal energy is going in a motor to know exactly whether, you know, pushing oil through your your, the lamb stack of your rotor and all of those things are buying you anything in the design or not. You know, I think as a design engineer, a lot of times people are kind of maybe a little bit trapped by the timeline and they just need to find the high ground and take it and add some of those features in, not knowing if they help or not. Um, I'm sure that's not true everywhere, but I think it is true in some places. Yeah, in a way, I think it really spe speaks to the importance of having a really good reference system model, and that's something right. that we continue to push forward because I think you're right. You want to be able to make design trade-offs as fast as you can, and you need to have confidence that the model that you have really represents something close enough to reality to make decisions based on. And we uh, are constantly pushing that frontier forward and getting more and more confident in our models all the time so that we really know Hey, when we simulate this and we simulated a certain amount of heat coming off of the either, you know, back iron cooling or shaft cooling or whatever it is that we're trying, are we really going to see the benefit from that when we go to do the application? Because maybe you added a bunch of costs you didn't need to. Right. Right. Yeah, you're you're very right. Or you sacrificed a lot of power for not much money on the other side of it, right? That's right. Yeah. If there ever turns out to be an EV tuning community, maybe that's where it will be. It will be finding our conservatism and finding ways to uh, bake everything uh, with more performance. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that would be really important. All right. Uh, on the topic of motors, you know, some people, you know, you don't see many wheel motors. Is that a thing at all? Or are wheel motors just not even a thing? I think it's it's an interesting technology in that there's a lot of a lot of people out there trying to play in that space, and I think you um, if you think about all the friction that you have in a drivetrain, if you're directly driving the wheel, all the friction that you lost in between there and the wheel uh, is gone. But then you end up with a lot of unsprung mass, and I think that's where 
there's still just so much in that space uh, to be discovered that it, it still seems like it's a pretty early technology. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Anything else on motors? I think that's, that's all I wanted to cover on motors. motors. I think that's pretty good. All yeah. right. Maybe we can get into power electronics. So power electronics, when I talk, when we talk about power electronics, certainly there's going to be some people watching that know exactly what that means. Then there's going to be some people that know that all I know about power electronics is that you need them and that you've got a DC battery and you've got an AC motor and power electronics go between the DC battery and the AC motor. And that's maybe all they know is some, so like a very, very high level description of power electronics. Um, can you help us with maybe just a, a better description of power electronics for those pe for those people that aren't familiar with them? Sure. No, I appreciate the question because I, I think, so uh, I kind of gave you some of my early history. Um, and after I, I, so I started in thermal systems and then I did transmission controls for a while and then I did engine controls for a while. And so I'm coming at this with a lot of uh, combustion background. So for me, um, sort of the mental rubric that I've put everything into to understand this for myself is really coming at it from that combustion lens and trying to translate from, okay, we used to drive a combustion engine. Now we're doing this. How, how is that the same? How is it different? And at the end of the day, the controls challenge is really, you have something that's spinning really fast and you need to try and control it. And so you're, you're approaching the same thing. So I think in the past you would look at, you had a combustion engine um, and you're trying to feed fuel to it through a fuel injector that fuel injector um, is very, very similar to what is today a power device. So when you hear people talk about like a uh, wide band gap device or IGBT or you know the, uh, the power module, the power switch, a lot right. of terms around there, that thing is in the same way that a fuel injector was fuel, fuel right. metering. That right. thing's like uh, electron metering, right? But it's doing almost the same job. Gotcha. It's so, the fuel. It's yeah. the fuel input. Okay. Letting that go. Essentially. And gotcha. then, and then, so if you kind of step back from there, okay, so you've got the power module and it's switching and it's letting fuel go uh, toward your, toward your power creation event. You back one up, you want to control how that switch is operating. Today we call that a gate driver. The gate driver is the thing that drives the switch. Um, in the, in the old days of combustion, you had your fuel, uh, your fuel injector was really driven by um, a, a fuel injector driver. It was still still called a driver. So, you know, at Borg Warner, ours is called Diflex. Uh, it's a really cool cu custom ASIC that we designed in-house. It drives all of our fuel injectors, including uh, diesel, gasoline, anything. Right. Um, the analogy to that now is the gate driver. And then and you think about the thing that had that in it, it was really the engine controller. The engine controller is now really the, the control board that's in, in your inverter. And so you can right. really kind of just take that stuff pack it all together and what used to be your fuel system is now the inverter. Right. Okay. Yeah, that helps a lot. I'm sure that somebody watching that'll help. But it's basically just an analogous system. You're just there's all bits and pieces of how to get energy and turn it into rotational motion, right? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I think you can you can extrapolate that further. We used to base everything off of degrees of crank angle and now we have the resolver. And then I have to say that's kind of where it stops because once you get into, <laughs> you know, taking, uh, creating those electromagnetic fields and how they move relative one to one another and creating torque, nice, smooth, seamless torque with an electric machine. And then you think about a really great combustion control event, trying to get your combustion to happen at like CA50. 
the analogy starts to break down. It completely breaks down. <laughs> and also the skill sets of those PhDs who are really good at that right. stuff uh, are completely different at that point. But I think for, for high level, just uh, understanding, hey, what's going on here? It, it works really well. Okay. The switches. So the two main types of switches that you hear about are IGBTs and silicon carbide. Uh, and historically, it's been more dominated by EGBT, IGBTs up until now just because of the cost. Silicon carbide is more efficient and offers some advantages. Is there kind of a tipping point to where you have to use silicon carbide where it makes more sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the the way to kind of think about that trade-off, and because it's it's not a really straight line of do this, okay, now do that. I think what we have found, the logic, the flow of the logic that seems to make the most sense uh, for our customers, they're looking at the overall consumer yeah. experience and they say, we would really like to shorten the charge time. We know charge time is important to our customers. How do we make a battery charge faster? Well, one of the ways you can make a battery charge faster, you want to move to a higher uh, system voltage. So you go, you start to approach that 800 volts. Okay, so now I need to be able to supply 800 volts uh, through my system. I need uh, power devices that are able to handle 800 volts, and that starts to move you towards silicon carbide. Okay. Then once you move towards silicon carbide, hey, it's more efficient. I can switch it faster. I can do all these other great things. And so maybe it's something that you were willing to pay for because you wanted that overall system bus voltage to help you with charge time. But once you have it, you can apply it to a lot of other things that allow you to really make your system more efficient. And, and we see kind of that that path kind of playing out with a number of OEMs. Is, I mean, I guess everything's, the, the cost of anything is volume dependent. And as the silicon carbide usage increases, it'll become more cost competitive. Uh, is there... Has it gotten to the point yet where you can almost make a case for it based on range increase with an increased efficiency, or are we still a ways away from that? And you're just pretty much making the case for silicon carbide on charging times and other things like you're talking about. Well, I think that you're right. That's where it was. That's where it was started. And I think uh, as more players enter the market and also the production processes get better, uh, it's it's starting to become more cost comparable uh, with with standard silicon. I think the other way that we're finding things start to converge there is we're really looking at how much current you can push through to the, the device and therefore use less of it. So how how efficiently can you use the silicon carbide that you're using? Mm -hmm. And that's where Borg Warner, we really see ourselves as a leader in that space. Um, if you look at how efficiently we're using our power devices today and then look at where we're projecting in the future, we see ourselves already in a leading position and still leading uh, in, in the near term 27, 28, 29 future. Um, being able to just push more power through those devices and, and really stay competitive. Okay. Sounds good. And has pretty much all of Borg Warner's growth into, into the inverter power electronics arena, has it all been pretty much through acquisition? Um, I know about you had purchased, I, I guess it's everybody knows it. You purchased the previous uh, section of Delphi that used to do that, right? And uh, what other capabilities do you have within the inverter? Is it all? automotive-based inverter technology? So in the space that I work in on a day-to-day -day basis, yes, it's all it's all automotive. I think, um, let me hit a couple of different parts of the company and I'm going to come back to my, my BU. So um, our colleagues at ETTS, the folks that do the turbochargers, they had been working on uh, uh, an electronically driven turbocharger. 
and they bought a company in Switzerland called DriveTech that's uh, really capable. An electric turbocharger needs to spin at like 250,000 RPM. It's a slightly different engineering challenge from the sure. one we're up to with a traction motor, uh, but it's still uh, a really cool piece of technology. And so they bought a company called DriveTech that's been helping them with that. Uh, so there's a, a, a piece of uh, electronic inverters that's a little bit off. And then we also, within our business unit, have a separate, a fully separate entity called Cascadia Motion. And that is really uh, the, a combination of what used to be AMR Racing and uh, Reinhardt Motion. Mm -hmm. And we bought both of those companies and put them together. And we've been using that as a way uh, to help companies who want to get into electrification, who maybe don't have the volume mm -hmm. that they would need to come and work with a mainstream Borg Warner. For us to customize something for you, it's very expensive. And for us, the payback needs to really have a lot of volume associated right, with it. Right. We just can't afford to answer every call that we get. The Cascadia Motion team, though, they have off-the-shelf ready-to-go product where somebody can call them up. You want one inverter, you can buy one inverter. And maybe right. you just want to make a hot rod in your backyard or you want to do 10 demo trucks to try and secure venture capital funding for your startup. It's a great place to start. And we see a right. lot of people really wanting to reach out and start with those products because you get the Borg Warner thought process and quality linked into that, but you don't have to, you know, buy 250,000 a year right. to get started. Yeah. Okay. Great. Sounds good. Um, anything else on inverters? There's a lot to inverters. They're probably in my mind, one probably the least understood uh, of the power electric electrified powertrain outside of people that work in that area, maybe even inside too. I don't know. No, there's, Anything else you want to cover on inverters? There's a lot to be said there. I think we, uh, we're we extremely proud of just the, the ground that we've covered in the last years. I think we really think that we are, should become a market, the market leader in the 25 time frame. Certainly by 27, we'll be uh, the industry leader in silicon carbide inverters, or at least by our own projections. And we're expecting to continue to grow from there. I think uh, what we've been able to do in that space is really offer a lot of value to our customers. We're we're not the only ones now. There's some others who have stepped in and are doing similar things, but we were uh, some of the first to take heat out of both sides of the die. So if you do a teardown on our product, you'll find that uh, both sides of the power electronics are cooled directly. And we make really efficient use of all of the die area that we're putting into our parts. And that's really okay. the, the cost driver there. So we think we're pushing out something that's uh, both very efficient and cost effective for the amount of efficiency that the OEM is buying. So we think we're in a really good space there. Okay. Yeah, they're just like you have a heat map on an, an electric machine, you have a heat map and an inverter. Making sure that you haven't overcooled or undercooled in any of those areas is 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 that's the whole game, right? Just making sure that it's evenly cooled and that everything's within its limits. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think we're continuing to learn as an industry too uh, about end customer use cases and what's really going to drive. When do you see those really high temperatures? Right. Because combustion engine we had 100 years of data we had sae profiles we all kind of knew um you know you run for a long time on the highway you come off you get in city traffic and you're stuck behind another car two feet away and there's no airflow coming through your radiator that's going to be your problem right i can't tell you right now <laughs> like what is this what's the analogy for that right now with an ev like what's going to be that worst thermal event we have a few different cases that we look for but i think we're still learning you know as as more of these things got into the fleet what's going to be that boundary setting condition that's interesting. Yeah, for sure. You know, a big piece of it is you have to be able to model it accurately. You have to have a tuned model. That's right. Uh, but but before before you can use it, you have to know what your inputs to the model are, right? That's What's right. the duty cycle that's worst case that I need to think about or analyze? 
Okay. Great. Gearboxes. Gearboxes, uh, you know, I, I've worked in automatic transmissions, transfer cases, all-wheel drive systems. And I think gearboxes, you know, just like maybe inverters are one of the lesser understood pieces, I'll say maybe gearboxes are one or one of the uh, lesser appreciated <laughs> pieces. That's right. Where they're just assumed to be, you're going to get it right. Everybody's designed gearboxes for forever, and the gearbox is is just going to be right. It's there's nothing new about the gearbox, but there there's a lot to these gearboxes. Those motors are spinning really fast, and there is a lot to the gearbox. Um, some of them use helical gear drops. Some of them are concentric designs. Both have pros and cons. Maybe you can just talk us through some of some of the design considerations and the gearbox piece of the electrified powertrain. Yeah, absolutely. So a gearbox, I mean, we've, we've done a lot in that space. And I think we have, at least on the shelf, if not sold to customers, a little bit of everything. So we've looked at sort of the parallel lay shaft, the, con- the concentric design, concentric design off of the step planetary like we did in the Ford Mach-E. There's a good teardown video from Monroe on that. I think... Uh, in all of those cases, uh, we we learned something, and I think uh, I'll pick on the MBAs here for a minute too. I'm an MBA, but what we hear a lot from that type of thought process is, you got to do something unique. You need a unique selling point. Go give me something different. And the more that we have gone back and to first principles and really tried to figure out, okay, let's approach the challenge. What are we going to do that sets us apart? How are we going to make this different? It's really hard to beat sort of that parallel lay shaft uh, three-stage gearbox. It just, it's one of the most cost-effective designs. It's one of the most efficient designs. And you can make things concentric and make them package tighter and do some nifty things for packaging. But at the end of the day, unless you do something super novel, um, the the good old-fashioned parallel lay shaft is just a really great way to go. And it's proven itself to be very robust. The one thing I will say, we do have a really interesting new, um, highly compact uh, three-in-one system coming out. We call that IDM, or uh, Integrated Drive Module. Uh, We're going to be showing a paper on that in Aachen this year, and we did something kind of more novel in there that really helped us uh, shrink that and make it concentric. Uh, and and it also made it more efficient in the in the near term. But I think then we really have to be working with the OEM to take the whole product. So that, I think that's the other piece of it. Um, once you really start to custom package things, you really need to have your customer identified and be collaborating with them on how much packaging space do they have and where do they want right. it to fit. And then that right. can start to drive some of those other choices. Right. But when it really comes to, you know, hey, I want the most bang for the buck, most efficient, Right. It's parallel. Don't worry shaft. about unique. Worry about good. Yeah. Just, just do what you know how to do really well and just execute it really well. Okay. Understood. Um, any special, you know, with these electric motors spinning so fast, any special lubrication requirements or just this standard keep heat out of the bearings and rotating elements and feed them with the appropriate amounts of, uh, of lube and you're okay? Is it? For the most part, I think for the most part, that's it. I think we have also, um, as we move to more active oil cooling, mm-hmm. the where our background in transfer cases, we were able to do a lot of splash lube systems. I, and I think we did have some examples where we also were, were pumping lube places, but a lot of times we could get away with a splash lube system. When you start to get into these more uh, mechanical pump driven, then you have a sump that you need to keep full. And then you need to know how fast that oil is going to come back. And you're also trying to actively cool things so that the, 
it's got different thermal properties that are changing. We've really had to dial up our game on modeling very significantly okay. to make sure uh, we have the, the fluid dynamics right. We're getting the cooling, the oil's where it should be. Gears are happy, bearings are happy, sumps full. Right. And, and that challenge, I think, is significantly more for us than it was a few years before. We haven't seen any OEM step forward yet and kind of consolidate the market around a new fuel. I think that, or excuse me, a new lubricant. That's something that we're very right. interested to see. And I think eventually we will see that in the same way that, uh, you know, deck six kind of became something that transmissions, all of them had in it. We haven't really seen like a super efficient electrification fluid emerge yet as the as the industry leader but we're constantly watching that space for what's going to come next and definitely we have our own favorites but you know that's at the end of the day a lot of that is really customer driven and, and we'll we'll work with our customers to make the right choice okay you know the speeds are fast the speeds are fast relative to things that automotive engineers are used to you know when you when you probably if I, I'm, I'm guessing if you talk to a guy that designs helicopter gearboxes he'd laugh at that you know <laughs> so all these mechanical challenges are are they're challenges they're new um they're new applications but i don't know if there's anything completely new under the sun and relative it's all stuff that's that certainly can can be addressed and is being addressed right absolutely i think let me kind of riff on that because i think what um we we do see a lot of talk of like going to really really high rpm and we do a lot of work in top level system modeling trying to take what is the customer going to want to see from us what's that high level requirement and then figure out okay uh you plug that into your optimizer and let's say that you feed that optimizer with all the different parameters of a of an electric machine all the different parameters of a gearbox all the different parameters of an inverter you allocate cost to each of those features and then you go run you know, tens of thousands of virtual combinations of those things, and it comes back with an answer. And the most cost-effective answer that it wants you to build is a really tiny diameter motor with a super high gear ratio that spins 30, 40, 50,000 RPM, something crazy. I think when you really then look at the practicality of something like that, though, you start <laughs> to say, okay, optimizer, I think maybe we didn't, you were under-constrained here because you came back with an answer that wasn't super helpful for us. And, and a lot of that, I think... Um, you know, uh, the efficiency and battery costs, the way that it's traded off, batteries are still relatively expensive. So it kind of makes you really want to um, pay whatever you need to pay for efficiency on the other side. But when we looked at some of those numbers sort of at the vehicle level, you find zero to 60 times of, you know, 10 seconds, 12 seconds. Like I used to drive uh, a Chevy Metro. I loved, I loved that car. But if you were to tell me, Hey, you need to go have a, a 12 seconds, zero to 60 time again, and you won't be able to shift gears. So it looks like you're feeling like you're helping. Right. Like, I, I don't know who's going to want that. So I think there's also a certain amount of when you look at the acceptance of EVs in the marketplace, that torque that you have available to you is a huge selling point. And so we can't forget about the overall customer experience and sort of let the optimizer tell us, oh, go do these other things. Um, I've been kind of uh, workshopping this, so you'll have to tell me if you like it. Um, I think in the old days, we always used to say there's no replacement for displacement. Right. And I think I'm trying to come up with a new catchphrase here. There's no parameter like diameter. 
I don't know. I don't know if that's going to catch on. This is pretty, pretty nerdy. More torque, lower speed. (laughs) Everybody wants to go the other way to downsize the system. Right, right. But but there's negative trade-offs to that. It's probably just less fun to drive. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, I like it. I think you should stick with it. (laughs) All right. Thanks. I'll I'll keep using (laughs) it. We'll look for the bumper sticker. Um, Okay. So putting all these bits and pieces together, you started talking about, you know, optimizing the system and how that might get analyzed. And, and, you know, when I've worked on electric drive modules myself, that was always the toughest piece because you've got electric motor designers that know electric motor design really well and gearbox guys and inverter guys, and they all know their areas really well. But in the past, a lot of times, the gearbox was not in the same box, same housing as the power electronics and the electric motor. There wasn't bus bars running around all over the place. So getting all those pieces to integrate well was the biggest challenge, you know, as a young group in that area, trying to get people to understand the best way and the most eloquent way of doing that was tough. You know, I think it started out probably a little bit rougher and like everything, it, it evolves and gets better. Um, at Borg Warner, what types of things are you doing to, to optimize that system integration? And it's one of those things. I think the best system is made up of the best components. So we're mm. we remain focused on trying to optimize each of those critical components: the gearbox, the motor, the inverter, as standalone pieces. But then when you bring them together, you're absolutely right. If you want the best combination of those things, you got to think about how do they combine, and really focus on getting that model right so that the best components that you have are all specced in a similar way to one another. So you have an overcontent in one or decontent in another one. And then when it comes purely to the, the 3D packaging challenge of how do you get all of this stuff to fit together, that's where um, we really have put a lot of focus on sort of the three-phase connection between the motor and the inverter and uh, how we are moving oil and uh, lubricants around because I think those, those end up being your other really critical interfaces. The one thing that I think is also worth saying, though, our customers are the most important piece of all of this. Sure. And a lot of times they come to us and they already have a certain hole in the, in the side of the vehicle where they want a drive unit to go. And so it doesn't really help us too much to go pre-design too much work and then have to shift it all around and try and you know put it into the hole that fits into the vehicle. So and that's where so we we've tried to develop workflows that allow us to get really good and really fast at adapting to the customer challenge, have the best components that we can, and then be really agile about putting those components together in a way that fits into that packaging environment. And that's really where we've been able to see the most success working with our customers. That makes a lot of sense. That sounds good. And you know, I guess with with all of the OEMs, you're not you don't always have the luxury of even ha- owning the entire three-in-one system, right? Some some OEMs are going to want you to do the, the entire three-in-one system. Other ones are going to ha- have a motor or a gearbox that they already want you to integrate with, right? Absolutely, and we're happy to work with them in any of those configurations. I think uh, where we've we've really done the full range, where it's all of our our content, or it's just when one piece is coming from us and the other pieces are coming from other people, we've assembled other people's components into our components and shipped the final unit where we test the whole thing. We are really willing to be flexible in that area. And I think that has, that has really helped us a lot because the one thing that we're certain about is that all of our customers are reworking their strategy on a continual basis 
you know, testing what the market's going to work, what works best for their teams, what's good for them to keep in house. And so we want to support our customers in the way that they need us. And so that really drives us to, to sort of be very flexible sure. uh, in, in the way that we make those choices. Yeah. Yeah. The markets that the, these systems go into, are you, how are you seeing the automotive market evolve? Have you, have you gotten inquiries from the commercial market market space? A- absolutely. I think, well, Let's. I want to break that kind of into two pieces because sure. I think the market evolution itself has been really important for us. Uh, and people who are familiar with Boardware might have heard of our charging forward strategy, which we launched back in 2021. And that really set three pillar targets for how we were going to grow electrification from organic growth, mergers and acquisitions, and then kind of tailoring our portfolio with some dispositions of business. And we have now delivered on all of those and our strategy board said okay that's great but actually we like the charging forward name we're going to keep it we're just going to create new targets and push them out till 2027 so we're building on that success now uh with with additional targets but if you look at when we set that first group of targets where we thought the market was going to go i think in um in the 2030 time frame we were in sort of like the 20 low 20s uh percentage of ev adoption now, if you look at where most industry analysts think we're going to be by 2030, the number is much closer to 48%. Right. So it's uh, mm-hmm. everything that we were doing before, it just reinforced one, you're on the right track, and two, you probably should be moving faster, let's go. So it's really uh, kind of put the pressure on us to try and keep up with the market and grow. Uh, you know, of course, we always want to grow a little bit faster than the market. So if the market's growing like that, we got to be growing <laughs> even faster to stay ahead of it. Right. Um, and I think the, the second part of the question was CV, CV space specifically. Uh, we definitely have seen a, a, lot of indis- uh, a lot of activity there. We have a really exciting uh, product on the motor side that's going to be coming out. I can't speak about specific customers, but uh, a new motor that will be coming out in the near future that's going to go into a lot of um, full-size commercial vehicles. And we really see that and that part of the market has matured a lot in their own requirements as well. Trying to think through, you know, do you need one really large machine that runs the whole thing that replaces your combustion engine? Or could you maybe get away with a few smaller machines that are more affordably priced? What's the what's the balance there? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen a lot of shifts in thinking. And hopefully this new product, when it comes out, you know, you guys will tear it down and tell us we did a good job. I don't know, but uh, I, I, I we're, we're really proud of it. And we think that that's going to be a nice market entry. And at the same time, as we grow, past car volume is definitely moving faster right now than the commercial vehicle volume. So it's still, I think, a little bit early for that. But that's something where we definitely still see future growth. Well, we'd love to tear one down. When do we get one? <laughs> uh, I, well, we'll have to work that out. I think it, it, it needs to have half a, a year. Yes, yeah, something like that. Half something, a year to a year, something like that. That sounds about right. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll look for that. All right. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Let's just show up on your porch. We love to tear stuff down around here. Um, yeah, the targets are moving fast. It wasn't that long ago I was in an advanced engineering group looking at what's electrification look like in the future. It, we probably need an advanced engineering project in that in that area, you know. That was, you know, like a decade ago. It wasn't maybe for some people that are younger, that's a long time. For me, it's nothing. <laughs> a decade ago. Come on. You were just starting to think about it in advanced engineering, and now it's everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I Just speaking of the timeline piece, uh, in my own time at BorgWarner, so I started in 2019. Um, in 2020-ish, I... Uh, 
took over a group that had just formed doing advanced systems engineering in the BU. And our very, one of our first projects was to create a new high-efficiency IDM. A product based off of that IDM just had its SOP. So if you think about that, it's only 2023 right. now. Right. We went from advanced systems engineering to a concept to something that was good enough to quote and then quote from good enough to quote to good enough to industrialize to in a customer vehicle in the span of three years. Right. It's really much faster than any other product cycle that I've ever been involved with in the automotive industry, you know, by far. And, and you know, we'll talk about challenges in the EV market. For sure, the timeline's got to be right up there. I mean, you know, most companies that I've ever worked at, they've got like some sort of four-phase development plan where you go from what you just described, an advanced engineering prototype idea to production tools are cut and you're, you're, you're coming off the line with these parts. And because production tools are so expensive, you don't want to kick those off before you've built a couple of rounds of prototypes. But is, 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 are, are those levels of prototypes still, are you still able to get those into the product development plan? Or, or do you have to cut some of that out to meet timing? I think cut it out isn't, isn't the approach. I think the way we're okay. trying to do it is sort of apply speed and agility, but in a, in a thoughtful way. So it has reinforced the importance of modeling and okay. trying to shift as much as we can forward with the modeling. And I think we also used to hold ourselves to a higher, sta a higher standard of production intent process. And so I think what we're finding is if your modeling is really good, you might be able to pick a, produ a prototype production process that's a little bit shorter still do your test, still get your learning. There's nothing that, that helps you learn. Even today, there's still nothing that helps you learn quite as good as a true part. But is there a way to learn enough theoretically up front that you can compensate for the production process that you used, still get your part, and then still get to SOP on time? And so I think how we, how we prototype is changing and also how we model is significantly changing. Okay, understood. Yeah, it's interesting. Things just move so fast. It just, it just, it, it can be a big challenge for sure to manage that. Oh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> I, and I think it's it's kicked off a lot of new buzzwords too. Are you a little bit familiar with like digital twin? That's one term I've just heard recently that I hadn't heard before. Can you describe that? Yeah. So it's it's something that we've really started with, and it's the it's the idea that when you make a part, you should have a model that represents that part. And I think a lot of times. Uh, we would do a CFD simulation and then we would do uh, a finite element analysis simulation and maybe we would do some thermal stuff. And then we would capture all of our requirements in a system model somewhere else. And those models wouldn't be related to one another. The teams would talk and they would make sure that they lined up on some good parameters. But what we're able to do with a modern tool chain now, you can really take all of your components and model them individually but use the same underlying set of reference data. So they're all kind of based on the same thing. And then take those models and add them together into an up-level system model that really models the unique properties of each of the underlying components. So when you're done, you're left with a, an overall system model that really represents the piece of hardware that you're trying to build. So you can ask the, you can ask the hardware question by testing it, or you can ask the model a question by simulating it. And if you simulate the test that you're going to run, you ought to get back the same answer. And if you don't, that's t telling you, hey, there's something about the physics here you haven't understood yet. So the, 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 digi the digital twin thought process, it's just taking the modeling that we were doing before and then trying to make sure that it's uh, more um, cohesive where 
all of the input parameters are tied together in a way that allows that to be one represent, representation of a real instance of the part. Okay. The people doing that have to be pretty smart. The, the tuning on a part, like a bracket, you know, you, you have an FEA model, you test it, you know, how the, the, the boundary conditions, the loading and the constraints in a part are pretty straightforward, right? And if, if your model doesn't match your test results, that tuning loop, isn't so complex to understand. When you start getting into assemblies, sub-assemblies, and then assemblies of a lot of parts, just the tuning loop has got to be uh, challenging for sure. Definitely. And I think uh, we're getting better all the time on those things, but it's not, it's not trivial. And when you look at the relate the way that the inverter and the e-machine react to one another because you're really generating a pretty complex field with a really beautiful hopefully sine wave there's a lot of potential there for the way that the machine is controlled to uh, influence the properties of the machine and so the modeling of those two things together is is uh, really important and then you put that into your overall system and look at its thermal and you're, you're right it gets really really complicated <laughs> uh, we're, we're lucky to have um, some really great great PhD level people and also uh, really great uh, partnerships with our tool chain vendors to be able to piece this whole thing together but it's uh, it's definitely a fun space for uh, for an engineer to be in yeah. That's the that's the fun part of all this, right? Engineers like interesting funded work. <laughs> interesting and not funded, funded and not interesting. Neither of those is so good. That's right. <laughs> they're they're okay, but interesting and funded is the best. And 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 there's plenty of that going around these days with all of this. We've talked about some of the challenges in the EV market, uh, supply chain stuff, and how to integrate all these bits and pieces, the accelerated timelines. One thing I, I always wonder about is the skill sets for employees walking in the door, right? I, uh, I, I, an interview question that I've used in the past that I didn't create. There was a guy at Borg Warner that I stole this from. Maybe he's listening and he'll realize I stole it. But it was, you know, there's two types of engineers. Uh, one is an engineer because he's great in math and science, or maybe his dad was an engineer and it looked like a good meal ticket. And then there's the other kind of engineer who's an engineer because he can't help himself, you know. And, you know, sometimes you get guys who have really weak examples. Of, and the question is just, which type are you? And give me an example. And we're looking for the guy that made a front-end loader out of his Jeep Wrangler or something like that. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. Is there is there an analogous question? Is it the same question these days for when you're trying to find a skill set, only maybe a different, slightly different way of answering it? I think, what, yeah. Is I, think hard? It, yeah. I think it's the same question. I think the answer we're looking for maybe has changed a little bit. So where we may have hoped exactly for a, for a front loader, and actually if somebody builds their own front loader, we're still looking for that person. <laughs> they, they sound awesome. Uh, but we're, we're maybe a, a previous examples would have been, you know, working on uh, a car that you had and maybe you were restoring a car and you could go into the details about the flatness that you achieved when you remachined your heads. We now need you to be more thinking about that really great electric go-kart that you rebuilt or the resto mod that you did where you took, you know, a Prius drive unit and put it into a World War II Jeep or something like that. So being able to uh, confidently speak about the major elements of an electric powertrain is something that can really set 
people apart. Yeah. So if there's any sort of right. uh, students in engineering or people out there looking for that first role, that would be a really great way to kind of differentiate yourself from the pack right now is have have that uh, fundamental EV knowledge and, and be able to speak to those points. Right. And these days, electrified powertrains aren't cars only, right? They're motorcycles, they're go-karts, they're everything under the sun. Yeah, they're bicycles. <laughs> so if you're a young engineer <laughs> or thinking about becoming a engi young engineer, you don't have to be rich. Just uh, an electric skateboard will be fine. That's <laughs> you right. You can learn a lot from just that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. I, I may have set the bar a little bit too high there. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, if you've got a, a really great uh, e EV project that you've done or you were on your electric formula SAE team, I think that's a great place. And I think for a lot of our workforce uh, that has a lot of skills that are uh, valuable but wants to move into this place. We've been running internally a program we call Power to Evolve that we're really proud of. We have a couple of university partnerships and we've now run um, more than 100 people, I think might be approaching 200 people through a retraining program that takes all the great stuff that they know from years in the auto industry and then helps them learn, okay, so what are some of these new fundamental things, kind of like what we've been talking right. about here today. Right. Uh, learn enough about that so you can come make a really strong contribution. And then, you know, you can learn the rest on the job. But there's so much about the automotive industry and what it means uh, from an expectation standpoint. What do we expect for quality? What needs to be done when? A lot of that hasn't changed. And so if sure. you already have that backline, a baseline of information, then you're, you're going to be just fine. Yeah. Yeah. The future of electrification it's evolving fast. Any predictions on where everything's going? Any any big changes that you see maybe coming up on the horizon or um, changes that, that have already started that maybe are going to yeah. accelerate? When am I going to get my flying car? <laughs> <laughs> flying car. Flying car. There's flying airplanes. I want my flying car. <laughs> <laughs> or my hoverboard from uh, Back to the Future. Right. Yeah, I like it. I don't. I don't know if we can commit to a flying car, but the. Uh, I think where we're seeing everything go, it remains efficiency driven and it remains performance driven. I think what we're watching pretty closely right now, uh, and we talked about 800 volt earlier. We've seen that big push to 800 volt, and because EVs have really been targeted still very much at the premium end of the segment, a lot of times we took 800 volt and we just you know, dialed it up to 11. We, we took all of the additional performance that you can get from the higher voltage and we applied it all to creating performance. So you've got these really high performance cars. People are absolutely going to love them. Not everyone's going to be able to afford one though. And so the question is, uh, I think we're asking ourselves, you, once you have 800 volts available to you, what are the other cool things that you could do at a more, let's say, nominal performance level to take those benefits and then really create a really uh, high value system. And so that's, it's with that thought process, maybe another plug for the paper coming up in Aachen that, uh, that we've really tried to put into our next generation drive unit for, okay, we, we had this, uh, these systems are great, but what if we took that and we try to play the, play the technology a different way and take more performance out of it and, and move into that better uh, cost point. So I think that's how we're approaching it. And then I hope just generally speaking, I hope that there's going to be more of a mass affordability of EVs because I really think that that's where things need to go for more people to be able to go out and buy one. That's super interesting to me. You know, as much as I love power, and I've just been on a riding around an electric motorcycle for the last three weeks, and I absolutely love it. It's a blast. It, you know, the, the, the engineer in me that loves the eloquent design looks for the other side of that. You know, if you are going to give a Kettering student 
or any engineering student, a, uh, an exercise of, you know, d design a, a vehicle that's going to carry a, you know, a human around that's a couple or three or 400 pounds, depending on the human. You know, one of the metrics you'd use on that is, well, how big and heavy is that vehicle? You know, and if that student came back with, hey, I've designed this, uh, this really cool vehicle and it accelerates from zero to 60 in a nanosecond and it weighs 6,000 pounds, <laughs> you'd probably give them an F, you know? <laughs> so there is the other side of it that, you know, as much as we love power and big vehicles are fine, they have their place for sure. There's got to be, you know, in, in all of this, there's got to be a more eloquent solution to, to moving humans around. And what can you do with that besides crazy, interesting, and fun power? What can you do with it on the other side of that is, is, is pretty fun to think about. Definitely. And that, I think, uh, one of the things that originally attracted me to the auto industry and continues to keep me entertained, there are so many different ways to solve this mobility challenge we are only scratching the surface right now. So when you think about all of the fun, different configurations that are going to be out there, and then you throw in the different configurations of de delivery trucks, and I'm talking from, you know, maybe a tiny little, little neighborhood vehicle all the way up to a semi, there's just so much breadth here. I think the other thing we're seeing a lot more interest now on the Cascadia Motion side, at least from the, the startup community and what they're drawing, uh, a lot of new projects are coming in and looking for marine applications. So that seems to be sort of the next place too. So I, I, I really think we're just getting started and there's going to be a ton more fun to be had here. I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Big picture. What do you see as the largest problem that still needs to be solved in electrification? That if we could solve that one problem, all of this would just increase in, by an order of magnitude. Is there just one big thing left hanging out there that sticks out as the one piece of the electrified powertrain that's lagging behind everything else? I think when... I want to give you a couple multiple answers. I know you wanted me to narrow it down to one, and that's I think that's really difficult because there is a lot of challenges here. I think uh, you talked a little bit about supply chain challenge earlier. I think that's a, that's a really important one over the next decade. We need to make a lot more vehicles than we are now. And if you look at some of the moves that we've been making uh, publicly, you can see that we're uh, we're really trying to address some of those supply chain challenges. We have multiple different uh, vendors of silicon carbide that we've been linking up with. We're looking at uh, all of the different ways to protect supply for our customers. And and again, back to the e-machine, thinking about different ways. How do you control uh, how much rare earth is in a magnet? Or if you don't want to use magnets anymore, what are some of the alternative technologies you can do there? Yeah. So I think the supply chain challenge is one big piece of it. And then I think um, a little bit more on the other side, it really, uh, I, I kind of said it already, but vehicle affordability, I, I really don't think that that can be uh, sort of understated at the moment because there's a, a a big push that needs to happen for this to be the the car that everybody wants to have and right. and i think that that's that's really the next big piece of that in in my mind though there's a lot there uh, once you start to say okay what is well how do you how do you tackle affordability then you're going to get into like battery costs supply chain and then just overall manufacturing investment capex all that stuff then starts to really get really get big but the good thing is those are the type of challenges that uh, borg warner's been addressing for the last hundred years that we've been a company sure. and i know that we're going to find a space there to to make right. our contribution to pushing that forward yeah yeah all right that's all really exciting stuff thanks so much dave 
I really appreciate I, the invitation, Ted. It's, uh, this has been a lot of fun, and I really appreciate that you uh, invited me out today. No, I appreciate you coming in. It's, it's been fun talking to you, and uh, thanks so much.